when you can look back on your body of work and see that it had a meaningful impact and look at this organization and know this place is more secure than it was when I walked in the door. I have fought, I have laughed, I have cried, I have gained and won friends and relationships, I have lost friends and relationships, whatever it might be. Everything you put into it to look back and see that it actually added up to a more secure organization is probably the best feeling. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. I'm recording a special show today. No guest and no one topic. Instead, I posted on LinkedIn that I would be doing an AMA, that's Ask Me Anything, and for folks to ask me questions, which they did. We got 30 or 40 total questions here, so I had to pick and choose some of them. The topics are all over the map, so this should be a lot of fun. Buckle in and let's get started. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, Michael Scheidel, board member and chief information security officer, asks CISO, what were you thinking? Lori Kenley, cloud security wrangler at Microsoft, chimes in with, I was trying to find a nice way to say this, but you nailed it. I'll also add CISO again. So, you know, we joke about this in the industry a lot. I think CISOs do in a lot of ways have a very thankless job. I think versus a lot of the other C-suite, we face two challenges that the others don't really face. One is that we're constantly having to sell the problem, not just the solution. A CFO, everybody understands what their role is. There's commonly accepted practices. There's workers that need to do certain things. You've got finance and accounting and all these good things that everybody expects and trusts and knows need to be there. I think for marketing, you've got demand gen and all the other aspects of marketing. Sales, you've got revenue goals to hit. Everybody has a defined role and everybody knows what the expectations are on them. I think the CISO ends up having to explain their own role in a lot of ways. I think the CISO ends up having to sell the problem we're facing ransomware or we've got a risk of data loss or whatever it might be, you have to sort of convince folks that there really is a problem to be addressed. You have to convince folks what the right techniques are to fix and address that problem. And so you've sold the problem and you're selling the solution as well. It's kind of a sell twice model for a CISO. And the other piece that makes us unique is that we're being attacked by outsiders. The marketing and sales and finance folks really aren't facing external entities and threats that are trying to dismantle and undo their good work. I suppose a sales team can be said to have competition in the field with a competitor, and maybe that's kind of the same thing. But you get the idea. So ultimately, we're the C-suite who has to sell the thing twice, and we're the C-suite who has to do so in the face of outsiders actively undermining everything we're trying to do. That's the negatives of being a CISO. The positives for me are a very different story. I like to think that what we do as CISOs, what all of us do as cybersecurity practitioners is truly a noble calling. And I'm not kidding when I say that. We're here to protect. We're here to protect the folks who wouldn't be protected if it wasn't for somebody stepping up and doing it. We're here to protect folks and protect their privacy, the integrity of their information, their data. We're here to protect companies that are trying to feed families and be successful and all the workers and everybody who might be impacted if suddenly revenue was to be cut off or massive cash outlays were to happen because of things like ransomware. We're here to protect and defend and maintain the integrity of people's lives and of the business world and of their privacy and information. And I think that's a very noble calling. And I think it's very important and very imperative that all of us remember that, especially when we're in the thick of the firefight and we're going up against 
what kind of adversity and what kind of struggles and challenges just to even achieve our mission, I think it's always important to remember that there's a true nobility in what we do. So that's my answer to those questions. Simon Goldsmith, Information Security, MCIS, C Engineer. He's got a whole lot of stuff here on his title. Simon Goldsmith, I know him. He's a CISO. He asks, without using the words risk, appetite, or tolerance, when embedding security into processes and projects and the SDLC, how do you recommend the right level of rigor? I immediately responded on LinkedIn that this was a very mean question because a CISO who can't talk about risk or appetite or tolerance is obviously very hamstrung. These are the conventional things we talk about, right? My mantra has always been business terms first, risk terms second, cyber terms third. And so without those risk terms, I'm sort of hamstrung here. And I got to thinking about, you know, what I said earlier about CISOs have to sell the problem statement. And when you're selling, it helps to have selling tools. It helps to have catchy slogans and these kinds of things. And one of the things I've employed as a CISO over the years is I'll come up with acronyms or abbreviations or clever little phrases. CISO I used to report to at a different job, Steve Williams over at NTT, has see it, manage it, secure it. Like it's just a nice catchphrase that people can grab onto and understand where you're coming from with your security mission. And so I thought about this one and I thought I would come up with something cute like the three Ds. We're trying to prevent data loss, destruction, and disruption. And as you go through the SDLC process, and as you're working with the teams who are generating, for lack of a better term, generating attack surface, if you will, it's important to share the three Ds with them. With each decision you make, person who's helping to build the pipeline, person who's helping to add code that's flowing through the pipeline, how are you working versus the three Ds? How much risk is there in this code? Oh, I used the word risk. How much likelihood is there in this particular code? One of the three Ds or all of the three Ds might come to fruition. And so something like that, honestly, it's helpful to have catchphrases and terms and acronyms and abbreviations that really truly help simplify the process and help people focus on what the actual goals of security are. So Simon, that is how I would solve that one. Now, Adrian Wright, who is famous on LinkedIn for being the cynical CISO, trademark, asks me, do you always rip your existing teams out of your last organization or only sometimes? And then he says in parentheses, this is satire. Neil Saltman, cybersecurity advocate, author, sales leader, mentor, lifelong learner, and VP at Sotero says, how many of your employees did you bring with you to each company? Or did you keep the team you inherited or build a team from the ground up each time? Was your success based on bringing the winning team, building it up, or a formula that worked regardless of staff? I'm going to be absolutely honest here. If you go look at my LinkedIn reviews, folks who have reported to me over the years, you will see that there is quite a lot of favorable feedback. I mean, truthfully, I feel like I'm the kind of leader that folks want to work for. I feel like I'm the kind of leader that folks would most definitely follow to the next job. And I think the feedback you'll see on LinkedIn substantiates that. I hope that's not a brag. I hope that's just me speaking to the facts. But despite all of this, I have always got in a contract somewhere, just like every leader does. There's something about not poaching. There's something about not stealing teams from before. I honor that. I truly and actually do honor that. Repeat employees, company over company, has happened a few times here and there, but it's never the next job. It's always the job after the next job or maybe even three jobs down the road or whatever it might be. I've got a gentleman on my team right now today at the day job who last worked for me Geez, almost 10 years ago now. So it does happen, but it happens long after any kind of contractual commitments I might have or any sort of violation. And I know most folks don't respect those contracts. Most folks will do the poaching and there's all these clever tricks about, you know, oh, well, I didn't ask them. They approached me and whatever gray area kind of answers to that go. And I know that these non-poaching contracts are ultimately not really enforceable. 
I've seen leaders leave and folks who reported to them go with them shortly after. And, you know, the company sends a sternly worded letter kind of thing. It's difficult to enforce. It's difficult to mandate. But as far as I'm concerned, if I put my name on a piece of paper that says I'm not going to do that thing, then I'm not going to do that thing. And so historically, I've not done that, which means I inherit a new team wherever I go. And I learned to work with that team, learn the strengths of that team. Very rarely, I have felt the need to make a change to the existing team. Most of the time, I figure out how to be successful with who's already there. I have very rarely let someone go based on, you know, hey, I've inherited a new team and this person just doesn't seem to be pulling their weight. It has happened, but very rarely. And instead, what I try to do is learn the new team, learn their strengths, work with them, focus with them, learn their goals and aspirations, and figure out a way to get the work done and get the mission accomplished, which always comes first, but in a way that allows the team to, as much as possible, meet their needs and their desires at the same time. I advocate fiercely for my teams. I've got their back in all situations. And I think that pays off in spades down the road. I think anybody who has worked for me in the past probably would be willing to do so. There might be a few exceptions, but I would argue the vast majority would definitely want to. So that's my answer on that one. Let's see here. Moving on. John Hayden, your friend at Trend. John works over at Trend Micro. We've had quite a few conversations. I've gotten to know John a little bit through LinkedIn, and he's a good guy. He says, I've got a question for a startup CTO. Remember, I am also a CTO, not just a CISO. This was the only CTO question, so I wanted to include it just because, you know, hey, I'm a CTO too. He says, how often do you sit in on sales calls to hear customer and product feedback? And the answer to that question is absolutely as much as I humanly can. I try to be involved in customer success calls, sales calls, whatever it might take to get direct feedback on what they think the product should be, on feedback on, hey, we're using the product today and here's some deficiencies or some you know features or whatever it might be. I try to gather that feedback from the field as absolutely humanly much as possible. So great question, John. And thank you for bringing up a CTO question. All the rest of them were CISO. So we'll get back to CISO questions now. John Rosario, Associate Technical Support Engineer at ICIMS, says, what skills and education level helped you land your first CISO position, and how much experience did you gain before applying to your first CISO opportunity? This is going to be a bit of a surprise, unless maybe you've heard me say this before in some other forum or context, but I did not apply for my first CISO opportunity. I was tapped on the shoulder and asked to come be a CISO. And the reason that happened and the way that happened is my career actually began in IT many, 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 many years ago. And for the first, I don't know, third of my career, or maybe it's less than that now, maybe it's a fourth as my career has progressed, I was in IT. And I climbed the leadership ranks slowly but surely over there. I did not seek promotion in those days. I just kept getting tapped on the shoulder. They decided to make me a manager for one site. I turned things around and improved things, and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, we want you to be a senior manager and run two sites. And I was about to get made director when an interesting opportunity came up. The company I was working for was a technology company, and there was a role in engineering where they really wanted somebody to focus on security. And the reason they wanted a security role in engineering is because I, as the IT manager of that division, had been deploying their products in-house and giving them constant critical feedback about the security posture of the tools. So this was many, many years ago now. But basically, I was deploying tools that my company made. I was finding them wanting in the security space. And finally, I was approached by the leadership in engineering who said, instead of sitting over there complaining after the fact, why don't you come join us and make these things secure in the first place? And I decided I was going to leave a very lucrative and promising IT career and jump ship and go back to being an individual contributor in engineering and dive into the product security realm. I did exactly that. I did that for years. Once again, kept getting tapped for promotion, eventually made director level. And at that point, the CIO tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, hey, 
I understand you used to be one of us, you know, in IT. I was like, yeah, 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 that's where I started. And you built the entire product security program, and it seems to be doing well. It seems to be very integrated in the business. Yeah, I feel like I'm making pretty good strides there. And he said, how would you like to come be my CISO and bring product with you? And at the end of the day, you will be in charge of all security for the entire company, be it enterprise or product. It would all fall under one CISO umbrella, and you'd be reporting directly to me and dotted line to the EVP of engineering. And I decided to take that chance and go for it. And that was my first CISO gig. So in conclusion, a strong IT background to start with a security focus. I was kind of always the guy that played with the security stuff back in those days. A good product security background and ultimately parlayed those into a combined role where I became a CISO. And I would argue that the product security was more valuable than the IT background, honestly, in being a CISO, even though obviously CISOs for the most part are enterprise and more on the IT side. And the reason I say that is when you're part of the product process, you are much more intimately involved in the business. And I was fortunate to be leading and building a team, creating a secure product line, creating security features for all product lines. In the early and nascent stages of that whole program, I had a lot more rain than I did later. And I was able to perform what were basically product management roles, product marketing roles, interfacing with the sales teams, the federal sales teams on what features they needed and when, requirements, R&D, QA, reporting into the pipeline and releasing the products on a schedule that fit the bigger picture. All of these tasks and activities I was assigned to do. And so I really got to learn much of the business in that product security role. And I think for me, that's probably the one I'm most thankful for. All right, Ross Henton, who is over at Mitiga, he says, you have $1 to spend on security, literally $1, what do you do with it? And I came up with a flippant answer for this one I'm going to share. I'm not familiar with all the major religions of the world, nor the sub-denominations, but I know that there are many religions and many churches and temples and mosques and synagogues and whatever they might be, where prayer candles or prayer incense or such things are a thing. You make a small donation, you light your thing, you say your prayer. If I had $1 to spend on cybersecurity, that is exactly what I would do. Put it in the box, light the candle and pray. (laughs) So that's my flippant answer to that one. Ori Stein, CISO over at Trustnet, says, talking to your younger self, the most important thing you would do differently after the knowledge you have from five gigs. This is a good one. That's sort of reflecting back on what I could have done better. I think in the early stages, I was very brash and I was very uncompromising and I was very mission focused, even though I just mentioned learning the business and getting better business alignment. That didn't necessarily mean that I was paying attention to the business needs around me. In the early stages, I would argue that I was far too security focused for the business. I didn't want to compromise. I knew for a fact that if we didn't fix this one thing, we had this big risk and we had to address this right away, even though it's going to cost money. And I might be in a room with leaders from other departments who also needed money for their business needs. And in the early stages, I was nowhere near as compromising as I learned to be over time. I think that was probably my single biggest failing as an early CISO was taking the security mission to be the penultimate mission of the company and refusing to acknowledge there were other business pressures and needs and moments where perhaps security had to take a back seat. Learning when to back down and learning when to compromise and learning when to recognize that security is but one interest of a larger organization that has many, many, many interests at stake, that's probably the single biggest thing that it took me a while to learn. 
So Bob Turner, InfoSec executive, education CISO, he says, after your fourth CISO job, what were the habits you formed that made you successful in the fifth? So, and there's some recurring questions too. Scott Brammer at Simon said, what did you do to improve on CISO gig number two, et cetera? What were the key lessons you learned? What other members of the C-suite, what did they learn from you? Greg Notch, CISO at Expel, says, what did you get right the fifth time that you missed the fourth time? My friend Andy Ellis over at Orca and Wild Ventures says, who says he got it right? That was his little... Uh, <laughs> His little comment on that one. Thank you, Andy. But basically, three people, Greg, Scott, and Bob, and actually, I guess this kind of ties into Ori's question as well. You know, what did you do and what did you learn and what did you grow? I learned to be more effective out of the shoot over time. I learned to hit the ground running and be better at the CISO craft in general in a shorter and quicker amount of time. The method I perfected over time is the first 90 days is a whip around where I get to meet the leadership of the organization, the whole organization, regardless of department or focus or purpose or mission, meet with the VPs and above, meet with the other C-suite, meet with everybody I can, learn from them, learn what their mission is, learn what their challenges are, learn what their take on a CISO is. You know, that's always one of my favorite questions to ask is now that you have a CISO, what do you expect of that CISO? What do you think the CISO is here for? What concerns would you bring to a CISO is another good question I ask. But more importantly, I'm learning about their world and their role and their business needs and drivers because during that first 90 days, I am gathering all that feedback and starting to compile a master plan that addresses concrete and specific business needs while also addressing the security issues I'm uncovering working with my own team in that same 90-day period to sort of get a handle on where we're at. My mantra has always been business first, risk second, cyber third. And I've got my team hustling risk. I've got all these meetings with the rest of the business to learn the business. And I'm slowly fusing those two. And by the time 60 to 90 days has passed, depending on how quickly I can move and how many folks there are to meet with, I can begin relaying back essentially as sort of the mirror holding up to the business to say, here's your collective feedback, here's your collective input, your drivers, your goals, your challenges, what you think needs to happen with security, what you think needs to happen with your CISO. Here's everything I've gathered and learned, and here's where I think we've got the beginnings of alignment. And a lot of folks talk about tackling the highest risk first. There's the whole debates about can we quantify risk? And if so, how do we do so? And once we've done so, a lot of assumption that the risk should always be the single biggest driver in terms of prioritization, tackle the biggest risk, right? And maybe likelihood and impact or a consideration is not just the biggest risk, but the biggest risk to the most important assets. A lot of formulas and calculations there. And I certainly do that. I will look at risks and look at assets and try to find the greatest hits and get on those right away. But I will do one other thing in those early days as well. And that is quick wins that demonstrate security alignment with the business, a business acceleration coming from the security department. I will try to find some quick wins early on that help demonstrate not only am I coming to you with big risks that we need to tackle that I think we need funding and attention on that may require diversion of funds from your department, contribution of funds from your department, contribution of effort and time from your department, whatever it might be. I'm not going to come in the door asking for all those things without giving something in return. And so in the early stages, I try to find those quick wins. The best and easiest one, if they don't already have SSO, is SSO. You're centralizing identity and logins. You're gaining more control from a security perspective. And at the same time, you're streamlining and speeding up people's interactions with the myriad applications and clouds and things that they deal with. MFA in a fast format, or maybe you're using fingerprint readers or something along those lines. That's another one where it's like, hey, everybody's logging in and getting quicker access to whatever they need, and it's easier to deal with stuff, and I don't have to memorize and fool with all these passwords and all these other things that used to be in the way. Little wins like that even. They don't even have to be big. 
Just a demonstration of, hey, look, we've improved security, and hey, look, we've improved business as well. Sometimes it's a matter of getting into the CICD pipeline. If you're in a technology company, there's tangible products being built, coming up with ways to help accelerate code delivery while also being secure, coming up with ways to not have security be the obstacle. One of the first things I learned in the product security space way back when was not to be in the product prevention business, right? And it's not just enough to not prevent or slow down. You have to try to find those moments where you can gain a win and actually accelerate as well. And there's always an opportunity. Every environment, every company, there's some kind of opportunity where security can help and help speed up and help achieve an objective, help get a little more business alignment while also achieving some kind of security goal. And I will always try to find one or two of those and prioritize those along with the risk and asset analysis. So that is my answer to that set of questions. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Lawrence Pixa, software engineering, he says, what is your exec level business value one-liner or pitch that grabs client leadership teams that lack digital security leadership skill and ability? So basically, you know, we're back to what I said before about the three Ds, which is one I just made up for Simon's example. I try to have some good catchphrases. See it, manage it, secure it is a great one. Preventing disruption, preventing destruction, preventing loss. Protecting the crown jewels is a cliched and tired one, but sometimes that one comes in handy. There are always ways to pick and choose based on who you're talking to. And the important message here is, and I'm not giving you one answer, Lawrence, specifically because... It's very contextual for me. Any given organization, after you've had that 60 to 90 day whip around and learned about their challenges, business goals, drivers, motivations, etc., you're going to find that as a collective business, a certain message may resonate and a certain one may not. You're going to find that at a departmental level, certain messages may resonate or not. You're going to find that at leadership levels, certain messages may resonate or not. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later with another question coming up. But I'm a big believer in tailoring the message to the audience as much as possible, obviously maintaining the core of the message. You're not just saying something completely different to everybody. It all has to tie into your core vision and mission. But flexing that approach, flexing that message, flexing whatever the acronym might be or the one-liner or the quick elevator pitch, it should incorporate their needs and their concerns. And that's the bottom line. So there is no one pitch. There is the tailored pitch is rather the answer to that question. Yehuda, sunshine storyteller, cybersecurity, helping cyber influencers grow their brand, reach, and revenue, says, what have been the most significant shifts in cyber risk expectations in the past 10 years? How can a diverse skill set and fluid communication style enable a CISO to succeed when entering a new organization? What individuals or SEPTA, I'm not even sure what the word SEPTA means here. I literally looked it up and couldn't find it. Should you align with to muster the best results? It basically ties into that question above. I'm going to tailor the communications. I'm going to learn what their concerns and needs are. And I'm going to make sure that my security message resonates with their needs and concerns, that it's aligned with their facet of the business. I'm going to make sure that security isn't just a steady and consistent drum pounding off to the side that's giving people a headache. Rather, it's a message of partnership and collaboration. 
And so that's it. The communication style is a style of listening. It's a style of partnership. It's a style of tailoring your language to your audience. Now, as to the first part of the question, what have been the most significant shifts in cyber risk expectations in the past 10 years? I think the Department of No CISO, and there's too much talk today, I think, about Department of No. There's a lot of us, and I'm guilty of it too, who talk about, oh, we're not the Department of No anymore. If we're truly not the Department of No anymore, let's quit talking about Department of No. I truly think it's a dead model, and I don't think we need to talk about it anymore as a dead model. The modern CISO, whatever you want to call it, I think we're past that. And that's one of the big changes. CISOs are expected to be business partners these days, and it's just an expectation. And so you're either coming in and doing that or you're not. And I think that's probably the single biggest significant shift in cyber risk expectations. Otherwise, I'd say there's some influence maybe with cyber insurance and some other more concrete influencers that have shaped how the business might engage the CISO. But for the most part, I really think it's you better darn well be a business partner. All right, Justin Dolahanti, let's see, he says he's with offensive security, continuous pen testing, red teaming, and more. He said, did the business side of things change you? And if it did change you, does it bother your conscience from time to time knowing that the business changed you? Absolutely, it changed me. As I said before, my time in product security, I think, was absolutely critical and informative and formative, I should say. I believe that the business should most definitely shape you. As you climb the ladder in the cybersecurity world, You should become more and more business aware and business centric. By the time you've reached CISO, you should most definitely consider yourself to be a business person first, a security person second, as should anybody at the C-suite. CFO, a CMO, a CRO, I don't care what you are. You are part of a business leadership team. Collectively, you are the business. And, you know, you're there to represent a specific mission and focus and function. But whenever you are in the room with your peers, you are the business. And if you're not doing that, you're getting yourself in a lot of amount of trouble there. He says, if it did change you, does it bother your conscience from time to time? Not in the slightest. I have had to learn to make compromises in the security realm. Sometimes the business decision outweighs the security decision. It happens. There are times I don't enjoy that, but it's not a conscience problem in the slightest. It is the right decision for the organization, and that's the bottom line. Let's see here. Grant Anthony, delivering secure and resilient healthcare platforms, CISO at Orion Health, says what commonly accepted good best practice security controls have little to no material value in terms of risk reduction. I am going to absolutely pick on DLP here, Grant. I'm a big believer that conventional DLP, and I know there's some new modern alternatives that are starting to come out that are hopefully changing the game in terms of data loss prevention, the goal. But the DLP tooling, in my mind, as part of a data loss prevention or data leak prevention, some people call it, if you're going to have a comprehensive DLP program that is reliant upon tooling, that tooling today sucks. That tooling is going to miss a ton of stuff. It's going to issue a ton of false positives and create overhead and headache. It is going to get in the way. It is going to fail at its stated mission, and it is going to require a lot of overhead to maintain and tweak, even though that capability and that functionality, in my mind, never hit. And so a real DLP program has to be inclusive of other technologies that sort of overlap with that mission, but also a lot more people and process centric. You got to get into data classification. It's a much more people and process statement for me than it is a technology statement, despite the fact that DLP is, in fact, a category of technology. I'm just not a believer in it at all. Joe O'Donnell, ICSOT Vigilant, says, What coping mechanisms do you employ to tolerate and empathize with fellow non-cyber execs and board members who don't put the time in to learn why you do what you do? I use the Socratic method effectively for that one. Kung Fu, Zen. I will take the time to learn their world and to ask a million questions and to set the example 
of how I expect them to behave with me. And maybe they don't always reciprocate. Maybe they're too dense or too egotistical or too whatever it might be to catch on what's happening and to reciprocate. But if I know I've put the foot forward, if I know that I reach out to them to be empathetic and to learn why they do what they do, if I can do that and they cannot Any failing that comes out of it is not my failing. It's theirs. And that's the bottom line. So I just lead by example on that one. That's my trick there. Stefan, Stefan, Timler, possibly Stephen with an A. He says, what keeps you going in the field beyond passion for security amidst the talent shortage, lack of cultural understanding of security, internal corporate budget challenges, and high stress? I think we've kind of covered that a little bit earlier. I think number one for me is that it it truly is a noble calling. I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. We are the good guys doing the right thing for the right players and the right people. It's a noble calling. But I think more than that, he says beyond passion for security. Obviously, I wouldn't have chosen this field if I wasn't into it. I was a little hacker kid back in the 80s and have played with technology my whole life. Obviously, that's a factor too. I make no bones about the fact that I came up through the ranks as a technical CISO, a technological side of the house CISO, not a GRC, not a business or policy person. I came up through the tech side. And obviously, as I've stated, I'm much more of a business CISO now than anything. But that passion for the tech, that passion for what is possible with technology, what it can do for us, the hazards and risks that need to be considered and overcome, that'll always be there as well. So noble calling, craft, passion for the technology, and more importantly, like every good hacker has, curiosity. To make it to CISO, you have to leverage a lot of the philosophical precepts of a hacker. Even if you weren't actually a real hacker back in the day, even if you're not the sort to just tear things apart and figure out how they work at home in your home lab or whatever it might be, at the end of the day, a good hacker has a couple of traits. One is a desire to understand how things go. Another one is maybe root cause analysis, and I'll even add a third and probably the most important one for the hacker mindset, which is now that I know how it works, now that I know what the root causes are of the things that make this thing go, how can I sway that in my favor? And I would argue that a C-suite person, regardless of their role, is facing a complex system known as the business. And that complex system is dictated by artifacts and protocols, just like any technology system would be. There are commands that work and commands that don't. There are barriers and rules and processes in place. But every one of those can be, to some extent or another, shifted in your favor. And just like any good hacker approaches the system with what can I make it do, I think a CISO should approach the business with what can I make it do. People describe various social communication tactics and techniques. There's plenty of books out there how to sway and win and influence and all that. And I think that's just another way of saying we're learning a system and using that system to your advantage for achieving the mission. And obviously, you don't want to be malicious. I'm not a believer in manipulating people. My communication style and the way I operate is very unpolitical. Very much not the, I'm going to manipulate people to get my way. I pay attention to some of the basic rules, you know, leave them wanting more and some of the catchphrases and cliches, you know, don't oversell, no one to shut up. I certainly obey some of those basic physics and rules, but I'm not real big on what I would call people hacking, but I am real big on institutional hacking. I am confident and convinced that I can achieve my mission despite a lot of the obstacles the business presents. And I see that challenge and take that challenge on in the same way a hacker says, this system's trying to keep me from doing what I want to do, and I'm going to figure out how to make it happen anyway. So, Stefan, Stephen there, I apologize if I'm missing your name. I would say that maintaining that hacker spirit is vital and critical as well. All right, Grace C., co-founder and COO at Pulse Dive, says, what formative experiences, good or bad, that are invaluable for a 2B CISO, how can you ferret out and make the most of these opportunities? I think I've pretty well covered this. It's that moment when you realize security is but one mission and the business has many, many, many missions, many of which are more critical to the business's goals and drivers than security might be at that time and place. And just learning when you have to compromise and learning 
where and how you fit into a bigger picture, I think, is super critical. Sylvia Lam. Oh, boy, I'm going to mangle this one. Ihensikian. I have mangled that. Ihensikian. C-G-E-I-T-C-I-S-S-P-P-M-P-I-T-I-L-M-C-S-E-C-S-O executive. Lots and lots of credibility here with Sylvia. She says, what are the most effective ways to embed security by design? That is a fantastic question. Uh, Another one that I'm going to give a cop-out answer to in terms of it all depends on context. For a technology company, or let's say a company that's developing and offering a SaaS product, we're clearly talking about CICD and DevOps. It's a very different conversation than simply talking about a more traditional business brick and mortar with an on-prem designator. On the one hand, you're coordinating with a lot of folks moving very quickly, generating possible attack surface. And in the other case, you're talking about traditional partnership with IT. I think there's a lot of different aspects and areas and ways to it, depending on where you are and what kind of shop you're in. But I guess at a fundamental level, I would say the single biggest commonalities across those are obviously security awareness. And I don't mean that in the sense of the little program everyone has to click through in the training. I mean truly working with the other teams to get them to understand how security is part and parcel of what they do, internalizing security in their daily mission through partnership, through design, through multiple conversations, through work with leadership, through conventional security awareness training programs, all of it. Get that awareness integrated. Get it to the point where they're coming to you and saying, hey, I was going to do X, but it occurred to me there might be a security implication. If you can get them to that point, you've won the game. Daniel Anastasi says, which factors are keys to engage your board of directors and get their commitment for your successful cybersecurity strategy implementation? I'm going to once again say context is king here. There is... No one, the board of directors, every board of directors is different and every company's mission and vision are different. You're going to find that some boards have absolutely no cyber expertise and no technology expertise. You're going to find that there are boards where one member is super cyber savvy or one member is super technical. For the most part, I avoid technology. Back to my mantra, business first, risk second, cyber third. Technology should be the last tool you pull out, but you may well have a board who demands to see a more technological perspective or at least one board member. You are going to find that you socialize messages with individual board members in different ways versus your total presentation to the board as a collective. You should most definitely be forming relationships with the individual members. Sometimes you're going to have a whole series of individual conversations before your group presentation, and you've literally already talked to everybody in the room so that when you give the group presentation, everyone is prepped, armed, and you have them thinking about things the way you want. Most definitely communication skills are more key than anything else. Couching things in terms of their needs and desires and goals, just like you do with the rest of the business, is most important and most key for me. Board of Directors is there to govern, not to manage. They've got high-level concerns. You better understand what their high-level concerns are. You better understand what the drivers and directives are that they've issued. You better understand what the impact to their world is going to be with various decisions. Start there, have the individual conversations, reach a collective presentation style that works for them, that resonates with them. Perhaps you save some detail off to the side for that one board member that always wants more detail, that kind of thing. Anatoly Chikhanov, Director of Information Security at NLX. He says, I'd ask, how do you do your time management, both personal and professional? The answer is, I absolutely suck at time management. I just end up solving the problem by throwing ridiculous amounts of hours at the problem. Rather than balancing and managing my time, I just spend way too much time working. That's how I do it. Not the best option, not the healthiest option. An option I periodically have to just completely unplug and disengage from. I just took a week vacation with the family where I literally didn't check email. Every now and again, I have to do that. But for the most part, I get up at stupid, ridiculous hours in the morning and do my thing. Peter Schwacker says, is being a CISO all it's cracked up to be? No, it is not. 
on the flip side of it, is it as difficult as many say? Yes, yes, it is. I don't think CISO is a glamorous role at all. I think you're the C-suite who ends up very often not being the actual C-suite. You're a C who reports to a C. As I said before, you're selling the problem as well as the solution. And while you're doing all of that, you've got outsiders actively trying to dismantle everything you've built. It's a very challenging role. It's very different from the other C-suite roles. Personally, being a CISO slash CTO now, I can tell you the CTO job doesn't keep me up at night. The CTO job seems to be more about building and creating. It's easier to align with business. I'm directly influencing revenue. There's a million and one ways that CTO is easier than CISO in my book as somebody who wears both hats. But granted, only one CTO gig so far. So we'll see. I may change that tune as I get to different environments and different shops. But CISO is a tough road to hoe. I would definitely think twice before taking it on. You've got to be fiercely committed. You've got to be fiercely resilient. You've got to be very thick-skinned. You've got to be prepared to put in some hard hours. If you can do all of that, go for it. It's rewarding. As I said before, it's a noble cause. And if you're passionate about security, obviously it's the way to have the most influence on security is to be at the CISO level. So definitely go for it if you can meet all those criteria. If not, I definitely recommend another pursuit. Ulrich Baum says, how do you communicate different risk levels to non-tech board level stakeholders and how do you translate preventative risk mitigation to ROI? I use the three-legged stool model, I call it. I try to get known risk captured and ranked. That's leg of the stool number one. Business objective alignment, goals and business objectives and drivers. That's leg number two. And leg number three is maturity. You can use various frameworks and various ways of measuring. You can have audits conducted, big four come in, CMMI, whatever it might be. But there should be a maturity variable there that you can demonstrate can be toggled and manipulated and improved. And that's your third leg of the stool. And then as to how do you communicate those risk levels and get all that across. I'm a big believer in what I call the double-click method. You go to the board with a high-level presentation, but if you want to double-click, you can see more detail. And if you want to double-click on that, you can see still more detail. And it really boils down to just like with the board, tailoring your communications. You may have peer VPs who don't want to hear about the tech at all. You may have peer VPs who want to geek out on it. Your own team is probably going to be very attuned to the details of tech and GRC both. You may find that only some of that do you want to roll up and present to peers. And then when you go upstairs, present even less of it. And then as you go to the boards, less still. But you should always have that capability to go in and out of the detail levels with everything you do present so that you can handle whatever audience desires are there. Avishal G, Chief Security Officer at Barclays UK, says, how do you divide your time between daily firefighting and strategic initiatives? What keeps you focused on long-term goals? In an ideal world, daily firefighting is kept to a minimum. Hopefully, the work you've already put in helps to reduce daily firefighting. If you truly walk into a new gig where firefighting is a key component, it's very critical to quickly ascertain who on the team can do the firefighting. Keeping in mind, burnout is much higher on firefighting than it is on strategic initiatives. You don't want to just saddle one entity or team or person with that and then just expect that six months from now they'll still be doing it. You have to pass that one around, but you have to make sure you contain it as much as possible, allowing as much of the team to focus on the strategic because the more you invest in strategic, the less firefighting you'll have to do tomorrow. Ofer Shaked, CEO at Deep Blue, has asked, and this is going to be our last question, what's the best and worst thing about being a CISO? I think the best thing about being a CISO is when you achieve goal, when you can look at a company or an organization, whoever you've signed on with, government agency, whatever it might be, when you can look back on your body of work and see that it had a meaningful impact And look at this organization and know this place is more secure than it was when I walked in the door. I have fought, I have laughed, I have cried, I have gained and won friends and relationships, I have lost friends and relationships, whatever it might be. 
everything you put into it to look back and see that it actually added up to a more secure organization is probably the best feeling. The worst feeling, I think, is when you find out the CISO job you signed up for is, in fact, a checkbox role. The company didn't really understand what a CISO was there for. The company didn't really understand how bad their security posture really was, and the company wasn't prepared to spend money to address a problem they didn't know about. Where you get there and do your analysis and do all the good advice and all the things we've talked about so far in this show, which I hope is good advice for folks, you go through and do all the things, and then ultimately the company just says no. The company doesn't care. Your job is to maintain, to not grow, to limp along, knowing that you've got all these deficiencies and holes in everything around you, and to just suck it up buttercup and put up with it. That is the absolute worst place to be as a CISO. And unfortunately, I think almost every repeat CISO has a story where that's exactly what happened to them. I know I'm not the only one, that's for sure. Well, folks, thank you so much for all these great questions. There were many, many, many more than I got to tackle. This show already ran longer than I intended. I am going to sign off now. This is the part where I would normally thank my guest, but instead I'm going to thank you listeners. I'm going to thank the LinkedIn crowd for contributing such great questions. Y'all be good now.